Thank you, Hannah. As she just read, our text this morning for the sermon is Exodus 4, verses 18 through 31. And if you haven't turned there, I encourage you to do so. This morning, I will be preaching from uh, the English Standard Version of the Bible, and you can find a copy of that in the pewback in front of you. If I haven't met you, my name is Charlie Jackson. I am the Director of Ministry Support here at Covenant Life Church. And I want to thank many of you for praying for me this week. Thank you for reaching out and sending your encouragement and your prayers my way. That has served me well. And so I'm grateful to be here this morning. Justin is away uh, on a scheduled trip. He and his family have gone to Tennessee to spend time with his extended family. And so pray for them as they enjoy their spring break away from the state of Florida. And uh, they will return um, at the end of the week, but you will not hear him preach on Sunday. Next week you get to hear Adam Zidlowski preach. And so as we continue through our book of Exodus, or the book of Exodus, please pray for him. After speaking with several of you this week, my suspicions were confirmed. Uh, You realize that this is no ho-hum text of Scripture. (laughs) This is not a uh, lift your hands and praise the Lord sort of passage at the beginning, though it does end that way. You realize that it raises some questions. I realize that it raises some questions. Questions that we don't have immediate or easy answers to. Perhaps you, like me, have been astonished just in considering the ramifications of the text. Perhaps in a God-honoring way, you've read ahead in this passage and you see what's going to happen in the book of Exodus, and you are rightly amazed at the wonderful works of God. Perhaps in your astonishment, if you didn't land there, perhaps you landed in another camp. Perhaps you're confused, bewildered, wondering what in the world is going on. And there are certainly opportunities for that. Even if you end up being amazed at the wonderful works of God, you can read this text and end up praising the Lord and still not know everything that is going on in this passage. But some of us have deeper questions. Some of us wrestle with this. Perhaps you even know people who have been driven away because their questions remain unresolved. God, why are your determinations this way? Why are you this way? Why did you harden Pharaoh's heart? Why would you show mercy to some and not to others? But none of my words, even if I were to wrestle with these things, none of my own words or my own emotions could be better for you than the Word of God, which is why I'm going to do my best to convey to you the Word of God in a clear and coherent way. It's not to say that I don't have my own emotional response to this. I'm not cold to the realities of this text. But I've also determined that I can't solve the mysteries that the Bible does not solve, that are hidden from us. And so I'm left to conclude that the Word of God is sufficient for me even though there are things hidden from me that I cannot understand. And that's good news for me. That's good news for you. The good news of us not being able to understand them is that the legitimacy of these things and the goodness of God's actions does not hinge on our ability to understand them. God knows that we have limits in our understanding 
And so, one principle we must apply to texts that hide God's wisdom and counsel from us is to commit ourselves to being content with what Scripture does reveal to us. We ought to pursue the same heart-level, joyful, God-honoring response as the authors of Scripture do. And one way that we gladly submit ourselves to the Word of God and glorify Him uh, is that we, we submit to Him no matter what. No matter what the world tells us to do, no matter how it makes us feel emotionally, no matter how much we might be bickered at because we are reflecting the truth of God's Word in our beliefs, no matter how difficult something as complex and mysterious as the providence of God over the actions of sinful men is. These things are difficult. I'm not going to sugarcoat this for you. This is hard for us to comprehend. Now, it would be a much bigger challenge for us to wrestle with these things if we didn't see how the biblical authors responded to them. But in God's grace and kindness, we do see how they responded rightly to these revelations from God. And so I'm led to believe that if God and his word were enough for them, then it ought to be enough for us. Now, I've titled this sermon, The Unsearchable Judgments of God, in order to echo Paul's reflection on the freedom of God choosing to harden some and show mercy to others. I think it is uh, important that for us to be glad in God we have to end or come from this text praising him. That needs to be the result in us. Now, I cannot do that for you. I cannot make you respond that way. What I know is that God can. And so I hope to be his instrument in affecting that in you this morning as the word goes forth. And so will you join me as we pray so that we might gain an understanding of God that results in our praise and worship of him that accords with his word. Our Heavenly Father, I do feel the weight of this. I feel the enormity of your providence. Though much of it is hidden from our eyes, we do see how you act through your sovereign will and execute your judgments in real time, in real human history. And you have given us your word so that we might understand you truly, even though we cannot understand you fully. You are infinite and so far above and beyond our limited understanding that we dare not ascribe to you human limitations. And so help us in these next moments not to do that. Help us to see you as the divine author of this plan of redemption that is good, that is righteous, that is holy, and that comes from your perfect will. I pray that you would help us to leave this place rejoicing in Christ's name. Amen. The context of this text, Exodus 4, 18 through 31, can be summarized in this way. If we're tracking throughout the whole book of Exodus, here's what happens. Moses and Aaron leave Midian, and they go to Egypt. That's where we're going. But before they arrive, a few things happen that we need to camp out on this morning. Critical aspects of what will unfold in the story of Exodus are going to be foretold or foreshadowed and discussed for the first time 
in Exodus chapter 4. This is the first time we will have heard some of these things. And so we have to examine them carefully before we move on to the rest of the book. So Moses returns from meeting with God on the mountain where he has uh, engaged with God who has revealed himself to Moses in the bush that burned. And as he returns, he asks Jethro for his permission to leave. You've seen that in the text. Moses comes back and asks Jethro to leave. He says, I'm in need of going back to visit my brothers in Egypt to determine if they are still alive. And Jethro says, you may go in peace. Now, some of you may look at that question and wonder, is there a level of disbelief in Moses' words? God has clearly just revealed to him that the people of Israel were alive and that he was to lead them out of Egypt. And so is Moses' question indicating a level of disbelief in him? It might, it might, but the text doesn't deal with that. There's no judgment ascribed uh, from God to Moses because of that. And so I'm led to believe that what's really happening here is that Moses is just asking whatever is necessary. He's asking what is prudent. I want to go and check on my brothers in Egypt to see if they're still alive. Jethro says, go in peace. It's not the last time we'll see Jethro in the book of Exodus. He'll return in chapter 18 and uh, we'll greet Moses and rejoice with him at the things that God has done after the Exodus. What is happening simply in the narrative, though, is that this is a transition. We're moving from Midian into Egypt. This is a geographical and thematic transition in the narrative. And so God tells Moses to return. And the reason he tells him to return is that all the people who sought his life are dead. This raises another question. Did God not have the ability to spare Moses' life with others hunting him? Of course he did. Of course he did. We're about to see in chapters 5 through 10 the signs and wonders that God's going to perform amidst the people of Egypt and in the eyes and sight of the people of Israel. And there's no way that you could conclude that if he's done that, he's not powerful enough to save Moses. So again, I think this is just a transition. We're moving in the narrative from Moses spending time in Midian to now going to Egypt. The time has now come. <clears throat> we see him pack his family up and head for Egypt on a donkey, and he takes the staff of God, a sign of Moses' obedience. God has commanded him to use this staff to perform the signs and the wonders that he has given to him. Now, this object, the staff, it has no special ability or intrinsic power. God could do anything through any vessel to accomplish his will. The staff had no more power inherent to its properties than Peter had in himself in Acts chapter 3 to heal the lame man. It's not that Peter had the power, it's that God worked through him in order to accomplish that. But as a sign of Moses' obedience and as a testimony to the power of God, the staff makes an appearance here and it's going to keep coming up. You're going to keep seeing the staff of God throughout the Pentateuch. A piece of wood in the hands of an old man is going to be used to lead an enormous amount of people away from slavery and into the promised land eventually. Now, as the family is on its way to Egypt, uh, God has more to instruct Moses with. He's going to give him more instructions. He's given him some at the mountain in the passage Bob preached last week. But this time in verses 21 through 23, God reveals a new instruction and the purposes for which God will harden the heart of Pharaoh. The instruction now is to do the miracles that God has put in Moses' power before Pharaoh as well. 
So it was not only going to be for the elders to see and the people of Israel to see, but now Pharaoh is going to see them. This is the first time God has instructed Moses to do that. The purpose for which God will show these signs and wonders to Pharaoh is tied to the revelation that God gives right here in this section. God is going to harden the heart of Pharaoh so that, and here's the why, Pharaoh will not let the people go. And Moses will say to Pharaoh that Israel is God's firstborn son, and if you don't let Israel go to serve God, God will kill your firstborn son. The issue of firstborn sons is largely lost in our culture, but in the days of Israel, the firstborn belonged to the Lord. God establishes this practice in Exodus chapter 13, which we'll preach on later this year. But firstborn sons also held the absolute right to the ascension of the throne. And so it is as if God is saying, not only must you, Pharaoh, let my people go, but you must know that I will overthrow you and your line if you don't. It was a statement of war. God is going to obliterate the Egyptian king if he did not obey the word of God. But we have to return to the issue of hardening, the hardening of Pharaoh's heart. This is the first time that we're going to see this issue revealed in the book of Exodus. Chapter 4, verse 21. God will harden Pharaoh's heart, and his purpose begins to be revealed here. This is uh, the first of nearly 20 times that we will see this, that we will hear of Pharaoh's heart being hardened against the commandments and revelation of God. Some of those times will be because Pharaoh had his heart uh, hardened by God. Others will be because Pharaoh hardened his own heart. But here's what we must know, and Moses records it this way. We must know that it all begins with God's promise to harden Pharaoh's heart. He's going to providentially harden Pharaoh against the demands of God so that Pharaoh will simply not let the people go. Before we move further, I think it would be helpful if I defined some terms so that we're all talking about the same thing. Providence. This is an act of God's providence, and I think it's helpfully defined by John Piper in a simple way. Providence is God's purposeful sovereignty. His purposeful sovereignty. It's the way in which God's almighty and unending power is revealed in the affairs of human history, particularly in relation to the purpose and plan of redemption. God's delivering us from our sin and into his salvation. Now, the providence of God, I believe, is seen in every detail of the Bible. Everything from famine to feasting, from prophets to poets, from wickedness to worship, princes and impoverishment, and all things in between are providentially ordained by God in order to bring about his sovereign decrees. So that's providence. Secondly, let's define hardening. What does it mean for God to harden Pharaoh's heart? What does it mean to harden something? It means to strengthen the resolve. God has effectively said that he will strengthen or you could say fortify the resolve of Pharaoh to keep the people enslaved and oppressed. Now to the issue at hand. We've defined providence. We've defined hardening. God will, according to the text, 421, he will providentially harden the heart of Pharaoh so that... He will not let 
the people go. So let's jump right in. You may wonder, why would God do such a thing? Now, to be clear, I take that God will harden Pharaoh's heart to mean that God will cause Pharaoh's heart to be postured and totally inclined towards sinning. I just don't see a way around that in the text. And I'm at the mercy of the grammar and the language of the Bible to convey to you what it means. And so I believe that that is what is happening. If God is going to harden Pharaoh's heart so that he won't let the people go, then categorically, it means that God will harden Pharaoh's heart to sin against God. That is what this is. It undoubtedly raises a host of questions within us, such as, you know, how can God cause a heart, such as Pharaoh's, to hate God and his people, yet God's hands remain clean and innocent of Pharaoh's sin? We have to wrestle with this today. There's just no use in going forward in the book of Exodus if we don't deal with this. And so we're going to do it. We're going to spend a large portion of our time together in the Word of God this morning talking about it. So here are the biblical conclusions that we must agree upon because I'm just going to, uh, not because I'm saying them, but because I'm just pulling them directly from Scripture. This is what Scripture says. Here's what we know about God. God is not tempted to sin, nor does he tempt anyone else to sin. Each person is lured and enticed by his own desire. That's James chapter 1, verses 13 and 14. John, 1 John 1, 5 says this, There is no darkness in God at all. Sin does not reside in God. It is not a part of his character in any way whatsoever. We also know that all people are responsible for their actions, even when their actions are according to the determined plan of God. The Bible speaks of this so clearly and in several places. Acts 2, verse 23. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite and foreknowledge, definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. It is clear from the text that not only was the crucifixion a lawless deed done by the hands of sinful men, but it was according to the foreknowledge of and definite plan of God. In other words, God intended for sinful men to kill the Son of God. Matthew 17, 12. But I tell you that Elijah has already come, and they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they pleased. Whatever they pleased, the free will actions of sinful men. So also the Son of Man will certainly suffer at their hands. Now this is Jesus speaking, predicting what has been ordained by God. He's telling us what is going to happen to the Son of Man that the Son of Man would suffer at the hands of wicked men. This is the ordained plan of God for the free will actions of men to cause the Son of Man to suffer. Acts chapter 4, verses 27 and 28. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you appoint, anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. Herod, Pontius Pilate, sinful men who sought and enacted plans to kill the Son of God. They did those according to the plan of God that God had predestined to take place. John 19.11, Jesus answered him, You would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. 
the one who has delivered Jesus over, has done so according to his own purposes, which accord with the authority granted by God. And then as the writer in Proverbs so often does, he simplifies this in quick and short terms. Proverbs 16.33 The lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. Therefore, it needs to be clear to us that whatever action, whatever sinful action Pharaoh takes in Exodus, he has to be considered morally responsible for it. He is on the hook for what he does. Even if those things that he does were decreed by God. But if God, as it is so often said, does not author sin, he's not the author of sin, then what do we make of all the sin that comes about from God hardening Pharaoh's heart? I, I'm not immune to wrestling with this. I, I know you're not immune to wrestling with this either. How do we make sense of this biblically? First of all, remember that the hardening of Pharaoh's heart means to strengthen the resolve of his heart. Pharaoh was, he was already cooking this is, he didn't walk into this cold, not hating the people of Israel. Um, but that still doesn't resolve the issue at all. It just tells us that, a fact, he was brought up to hate the people of Israel. It's clear that he had been raised up in order that God's power might be made known to all the earth. That's the statement that God makes. If you look forward in Exodus chapter 9, verse 16, it says this, when he says to Pharaoh... But for this purpose I have raised you up to show my power, so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. As we're thinking about God's providence, remember that God's audience in Exodus was not just Israel. It wasn't just Pharaoh or even the nation of Egypt. Think about God's purpose and plan here for a second. What was his audience, according to that text? His audience is everybody. It's you, it's me, It's the German people. It's the Yimby Yimby people that Brooks Buser talked about a few weeks ago. It's the Italians. It's the New Yorkers. It's the Eskimo people, the Chinese people, the Roman Empire, the Stoics, the philosophers, and the poets. It's the Nigerian people, the Hawaiians, the Filipino, and the Aborigine, the Taiwanese, the British, and the Colombian. His audience is Egypt and Israel and Pharaoh and everybody. It's everybody. That's why he is doing this, so that everyone would see my name, his name, proclaimed in all the earth. That's why he's doing this. So that helps us with context. Now, more context to see God's providence working leading up to this moment where he says, I'm going to harden Pharaoh's heart. God's providence goes all the way back before he says he's going to harden Pharaoh's heart. Consider this. Pharaoh has an upbringing so that he would hate the people of Israel. Just consider his predecessor. How did he treat Israel? He took their sons and wanted to throw them in the Nile River. He hated them. Pharaoh was raised in a household of hate. And God ordained it that way. Listen to Psalm 105, 24 through 25. This is a reflection from the 105th Psalm about how Israel led, the the presence of Israel in Egypt led, according to God's plan, Egypt to hate them. It says this, verse 24, And the Lord made his people very fruitful and made them stronger than their foes. He turned their hearts, that's the people of Egypt, the foe, he turned their hearts to hate his people, to deal craftily with his servants. 
God did that. God turned the heart of the Egyptians to hate Israel due to them being obedient to God. Being fruitful and multiplying is biblical language that signifies that the people of Israel were obeying their creation mandate that God had given them. Now, what about before that? Let's rewind the clock further back. He worked, that is God, he worked through Joseph's ordeal. Remember Joseph. He was a 17-year-old boy who was sold into slavery and providentially brought into Egypt through the acts of wicked, sinful human beings. It wasn't just his wicked brothers. It was other people. Wicked human traffickers. Uh, a woman who hated him, who sought to ensnare him and then lied about him. He was hated by people. Now, Psalm 105, 16 and 17, remembers Joseph as well. It says this. When he summoned a famine, that is when God summoned a famine on the land and broke all supply of bread, he sent a man ahead of them, that is his family, the people of Israel, Joseph, who was sold as a slave. You see the connective tissue here. God brought about the famine. God sent Joseph into Egypt in order that years later he would bring his family in to preserve them. This is God providentially working out all things according to the counsel of his will, even through the actions of sinful human beings. I want you to see so clearly, as clearly as I can help you see this, that God has been ordaining things that are sinful. Yes, I just said that. He has been ordaining, sovereignly overseeing, and decreeing things that are sinful in order to bring about things that are good. How? I can't say that for sure. I cannot say that for sure. It's a mystery as to how God does this, how he is not himself sinful, yet he sovereignly oversees the sinful acts of human beings in a way that brings about his glory on the earth and the good of his people. Now, what I can deduce from Scripture since God is good and can only do good, is that God clearly had a purpose for evil that his goodness could not accomplish. In other words, God cannot do evil because he is pure goodness. Furthermore, we believe as Christians that God cannot change. That's who he is as the I am. He does not change ever. But his creatures, particularly human beings, can change. We are sinful. We weren't created to be sinful, but we are through our own volition of our will. Through our own free choices, we became sinful creatures. Yet God has chosen to operate providentially through our sinfulness in order to show his power to the world. In this way, God is not guilty of wrongdoing, nor can it be said that he is the author of sin. We're reaching the limits of our human language in order to understand something that the wisdom of God does not fully reveal to us. And so that's why we have to, just even right now, if you're struggling, wrestling with this, pray that God would help you see as well as you can from his word what is happening. God has been setting this up for hundreds of years. Since the creation of the world, he's been setting it up. He's not just now in telling 
Moses, he's going to harden Pharaoh. He's not just now starting to act providentially through the lives of sinful humans whom he used for his own purposes. And I would go even further to argue that Israel was enslaved to build up the nation of Israel, or to build up the nation of Egypt. I mean, free labor for 400 years, slave labor, horrific human conditions, terrible things. But God has allowed that to happen to build up Egypt as high as it became. Again, it's mysterious to us. We can say at the same time that God providentially did that and that Egypt is guilty of horrific crimes against humanity and God, wickedly sinning. He's been building this up for this entire time so that the might of Pharaoh would be to God. The might, I'm sorry, the might of God would be to Pharaoh as a boot is to an ant. He's building up Pharaoh in order to crush him. My point in saying all of this about God's providence is that these determinations, this foreknowledge of his and decrees of God are nothing new in the story. Nothing new. Moses picks up on this. He says in Genesis 45, when he records Joseph as saying to his brothers, come near to me, please. And they came near. And he said, I am your brother, Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. He's he's reminding them that they did that sinfully. He says this, for God sent me before you to preserve life. They're happening at the same time. For the famine has been in the land these two years, and there are yet five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest. And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth. God caused the famine, Psalm 105. He sent Joseph ahead of them to preserve a remnant. He's providentially decreeing and ordaining and working all of this out. The text continues, And to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. Genesis chapter 50, verse 20. So this is again Joseph reflecting on this. He says, as for you, you meant evil against me. Talking to his brothers. This wicked thing that you did, brothers, you meant this for evil against me. But God meant it for good. To bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. This is what the Bible says. It is hard to comprehend. But it is true that God is doing these things and operating sovereignly over the sinful actions of human beings, yet he himself remains unblemished by them. Now, you may want to argue with me and say, but God only hardened, if you go back to Exodus and look forward a little bit, you might want to say that God only hardened Pharaoh's heart after Pharaoh had hardened his own heart. The argument here, the counter-argument, the position I'm taking is that Pharaoh hardened his own heart first in Exodus 8.15 and again in verse 32. So then many people would cite Exodus 9.12, which is the first time in the narrative that it is said that God hardens Pharaoh's heart. So the first thing would be that Pharaoh hardened his own heart, and then God hardened Pharaoh's heart in that timeline. And so since Pharaoh hardened himself first, then God is not the originator He merely uses his foreknowledge in Exodus 4.21 to describe hardening Pharaoh's heart and that Pharaoh's hardness of heart is singularly the act of Pharaoh's own free will. I think 
the error in this perspective is that God depended upon Pharaoh's own self-hardening. I think that that fails to consider that there are four occasions prior to God hardening Pharaoh's heart in chapter 9, verse 12, where Pharaoh's heart is hardened already according to the will of the Lord. So track with me here. In 9.12, that's the first time in the narrative that it says that God hardened Pharaoh's heart. But four times prior to that, Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and it was according to the will of God. Here are the instances. Exodus 7.13 says this, Still, Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he would not listen to them. Why? As the Lord said. Exodus 7.22, But the magicians of Egypt did the same by their secret arts, so Pharaoh's heart remained hardened, and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. There's the refrain, Exodus 8.15. But when Pharaoh saw that there was a respite, he hardened his heart and would not listen to them. Here's the refrain, as the Lord had said. And finally, in chapter 8, verse 19, Then the magicians said to Pharaoh, This is the finger of God. But Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. The reason Moses said that Pharaoh's heart was hardened is rooted in the truth that God said, not just that his heart would be hardened, but that God would do the hardening. Behind the hardening of Pharaoh's heart and his own self-hardening was the plan and purpose of God to harden. That came first. We can't escape that reality. That is what the Bible says. As one theologian said in describing this, God's hardening was not described as a response to what Pharaoh does. It's the other way around. When Pharaoh, what Pharaoh does, his self-hardening is described as the effect of what God has already done. Now, why is he doing this? This question still just exists. Why is he doing this? God has been raising Pharaoh up since Joseph first stepped foot into Egypt in Genesis. And the wickedness of Joseph's brothers goes back to the jealousy that started with Cain and Abel. And Cain failing to listen to God's voice traces back to the garden. I'm saying that we can't start with Pharaoh's hardness of heart. We have to keep going all the way back until we see the unthinkable, sovereign, providential hand of God working through human sinfulness so that, Exodus 9.16, Pharaoh would be raised up so that the power of God would be displayed through him. That's why. We also need to prepare, in thinking about the hardness of Pharaoh's heart, to look forward in the story of Exodus. I don't think Moses is being sent by God into Egypt with God wondering, I wonder how many plagues it's going to take for Pharaoh to finally come around. He's not doing that. God shows the designs or the signs and wonders to submit Pharaoh to divine authority. He, he knows that he's going to give these 10 plagues. They're going to come up in Exodus 5 through 10. He's going to give or these signs that come up in Exodus 5 through 10 so that he could sit Pharaoh down, so that Egypt would see God as the one true king of the universe. And he shows his kingship to the Egyptians, so that's the other audience. He shows his kingship to the Egyptians so that Israel 
would look back and remember that God is the absolute Lord, not the king of Egypt. And he does that so that the people of Israel would magnify his name to the entire world. Remember, that's Israel's purpose. They exist to be a light to the nations to display the marvelous wonders of God. That's Genesis 12. That's why they exist, to be a light to the world. Genesis 15. Now, is God just in doing all of this? Is he just in his mission? What stops you and me from pointing the finger at God and saying, why would you do this? How could you do this? We have to know that God does not merely act in response to the actions of sinful humans. He has freedom to act. He has freedom to act. How does he act? Ephesians 1.11, he works all things according to the counsel of his will. And according to Paul in Romans 9, his will is expressed in how he shows mercy and how he hardens. And so turn to Romans 9 with me. We cannot talk about God's freedom of his will or the hardening of Pharaoh's heart without discussing Romans 9. We just can't ignore Paul on this issue because he speaks about it and he speaks so clearly. Let's look at verses 14 through 18. Of Romans 9. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? So he's asking the question that I just asked. God, how could you be just in doing this? Is there injustice on God's part? And Paul says, by no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. And I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh... For this purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then, verse 18, he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. Let's make a few observations of this text briefly. Paul states there's no injustice with God. Paul grounds his argument on the basis of his having mercy on whom he will have mercy. And having compassion on whom God will have compassion. In other words, he states that his will to show mercy is not based upon any level of human involvement. God's will in choosing this, his freedom of his own will, is free from our action. God is independent of us in this freedom to choose. He acts according to the counsel of his will, not ours. Nothing in us, whether moral or immoral, godly or ungodly, affects his choice. In verse 17, the text says that his will is grounded in his pursuit of his own glory. Again, that's the purpose of Exodus 9.16. He's after his own glory. Later in Exodus, he will say, I will get glory from Pharaoh. And there are plenty of other instances in Scripture when the Lord operates and he says, I'm doing this for my namesake, for the sake of my own name in the nations. Now, Let's go back to a point real quick. Don't forget, we're morally culpable. We're guilty of our own sin. All of us deserve judgment. And if you need that argument, just go back to Romans 1 through 3. So let's factor that in as a part of our understanding. None of us are worthy of being shown mercy at all. So then, here's the question. Why does one sinner receive hardening, such as Pharaoh, and another does not? The answer is verse 18 of Romans 9. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. You could say it like this. God's hardening is unconditional. 
That's what he said earlier in Romans 9 about Jacob being loved and Esau being hated before either of them were yet born. That's his point when in Romans 9, 19 through 26, he answers the question that we're all tempted to object with, and that is this. How can God find fault in us if we cannot resist his will? How can Pharaoh be guilty of sin when he could do nothing but act according to the hardness of heart which God gave to him? Paul simply answers this in Romans 9, 21. Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? Friends, we all come from the same lump of clay. And God has the right in the counsel of his own will to make some for dishonorable use and others for vessels of mercy so that the riches of his glory would be made known over the whole world. Nothing about the clay informs God's decision. That's not to say he doesn't love us. It's not to discount the rest of Scripture when it teaches us clear that God has common grace and gives us air to breathe and food to eat and shelter to live in. It doesn't discount at all the fact that he loves his people. This is to discuss and help us understand that God operates according to the counsel of his will and in humility we must accept that it is not based on our own actions or anything in us that deserves mercy because we all deserve judgment. God has utter freedom, total freedom in choosing those for mercy or hardening unconditionally and independently of us. Now one more thing before we move on. Maybe you're thinking... If Pharaoh receives judgment for his own actions, which is fair, Pharaoh is sinful, he should be judged, then why not Moses? Why would Moses not be judged? How is it that Moses can receive mercy? That's a fair question. God will tell Moses later that by no means will he pardon or clear He won't clear the guilty. In other words, he won't sweep their sin under the rug. So why can Moses be allowed to walk down the mountain after just doubting God's providence the entire time? I mean, last week Bob covered it. Moses is facing unbelief. He does not believe God in the way that he ought to. So how can he come out of there unscathed? How did he live? Romans 3. 23 and 20, through 26. Why don't you turn there really quick? This is perhaps the most important set of verses in the entire Bible. These might be the most important words you will ever hear in your life. God is going to enact punishment for Moses' sin, and he's going to maintain his justice, and Moses is going to receive mercy, and it's not just Moses that we're talking about here. It is everyone who has faith in Christ, and this is how God is just. Romans 3, 23 through 26. For, you've heard these words, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. 
This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. What is he saying here? Moses, his sin is going to be punished. His unbelief is going to be punished, but it's not going to be that Moses has to receive the wrath of God for his sins. It is that through faith in the Messiah of God, he can have his sins covered because God put forth the Son of God, Jesus Christ, as a propitiation by his blood. That means that the wrath of God was poured out on Christ and the sin of all who place faith in Jesus Christ for salvation, have their, they have their sins atoned for, covered, so that they don't face the judgment of God. So now God is just in punishing sin. He's not letting sin go unpunished. He's not sweeping it under the rug. Christ Jesus takes that for all who have faith in him. And if Christ doesn't take it, and here's the warning for you, if he doesn't take it, you will. Either your sin will be, either you will be punished for your sin, or Christ Jesus will be punished for your sin in your place. That's it. So that he becomes, God, the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. If you have faith in Christ, you are justified. You are made right with God. You receive the righteousness of Christ, which you did not earn. All of this is through faith. Moses will have faith in God so that his sins will be punished by Christ. This is the hope of the gospel. Jesus came so that he would take the punishment, the wrath of God for the sins of all who would place faith in Christ and say, there is no hope in life and death for me except Jesus Christ for my salvation. He lived perfectly in a way that I could never hope to. He obeyed all of God's commands. He lived righteously as the true and better son of God. He was crucified for us and our salvation so that God would be just in punishing the sins that we deserve to receive the punishment for. But Christ, being the perfect, spotless, unblemished Lamb of God, could take that in a way that none of us could on behalf of other people. Only Christ can take that, and he did for all who have faith in Jesus. And God proved that it was accepted because Christ Jesus rose from the dead victorious over sin and death. And if you trust in that, You will be saved. You will have eternal life. You will be made right with God. And if you don't, you will spend eternity suffering under the just judgment of God. There is no other hope for you. There was no other hope for Moses than Christ Jesus being put up as a propitiation so that God would be just and the justifier of those who have faith in Christ. God never sweeps sin under the rug. He never leaves it hanging out there. It's either paid for by Christ or by those who commit it. So how do we respond then to this strange providence of God that we've just spent all this time talking about? First, Christian, and perhaps even you who are considering Christianity, perhaps doubting God, wondering what all of this is about, Here's the first thing that we do. We ensure that we do not ascribe to God the limitations of wisdom and knowledge that we have. God is not like us in that way. 
God is perfect in these things. We are not. Secondly, we respond biblically to God's strange providence. How did Moses and Paul and the author of the 105th Psalm, which we've talked about, how did they all respond? Here's what Moses said, Deuteronomy 29, 29. The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever that we may do all the words of his law. There are things that we won't know, and they belong to God. And we respond by obeying to what he's given us. The psalmist bookended Psalm 105 about God's providence through Joseph and the Egyptians by calling people to give thanks to God and tell of his wonderful deeds. In the midst of thinking about the difficulty of understanding the complexities of the providence of God over the sinful actions of human beings, the psalmist said, sing. (laughs) He said, worship the Lord in gladness. Go read Psalm 105 this week. See how the psalmist deals with it. And Paul, and this is where we got the sermon title, in Romans 11, 33 through 36, he says this, in jubilant praise, he says this, Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. That is how Paul dealt with the hardness of Israel. He gets through Romans 9, 10, and 11 talking about how there's a a partial hardening over the household of Israel so that they would not believe that the Son of God whom they've been waiting for this whole time was actually the Messiah in order that the Gentiles might believe. This is a mysterious thing of God that Paul is wrestling with because he loves his people. And how does he conclude? The judgments of God are unsearchable. Praise be to his name. That is where Paul lands. The last thing I would say is this. When you're walking through a difficult season, this last thing on hardening, we still got more. When you're walking through a difficult season of God's strange providence in your life, when it's clear that he is permitting evil things to happen around you, in your community, in your society, in your neighborhood, in your workplace, in your school, in your household? How do you respond? Fortunately, we have two ways that are simple, that are repeated throughout Scripture, and that is this. When the prophets, or when the psalmist, when the people of God the righteous ones, had to endure times of suffering at the hands of wicked men, they waited on the Lord. Wait on the Lord. And on the back end of that, when God had triumphed victoriously, they rejoiced in the Lord. Wait on the Lord in the season of suffering and trial at the hands of wicked men, and then rejoice in the Lord when God has triumphed. Be faithful. Be faithful to do that. He will always see you through. Now, we move from one difficult portion of this text to another. Uh, Look in your Bibles at verses 24 through 26. Uh, We'll try to get through this quickly. Um, This is an unusual section in Scripture. And uh, I'm just going to summarize it for you. On the way to Egypt, they stopped at a campsite. And 
the Lord sought out Moses to kill him. Now, the text isn't exactly clear about who he is. The pronouns in the Hebrew are just his or him. It's presumed that it's Moses, and I'll give you the reason why I think that that's the case, and most biblical scholars would also say the same thing. The Lord sought out Moses to kill him, and Zipporah took a flint and cut off the foreskin of one of the sons of Moses and threw it at Moses' feet. Uh, Now, I know there are children in the room, so I'm going to allow the parents to describe these things at their own discretion. I think that's your role, so feel the freedom to do that. I will not say more than what the scriptures say about this. And so that act of circumcision being thrown, and then the foreskin being thrown at Moses' feet, somehow appeases God, and he withdraws. He does not kill Moses, and Zipporah says, Surely you're a bridegroom of blood to me, which I take to mean that Zipporah was big mad. She was not happy that she had to do this. Now, it's, if you read a wide variety of commentators on this subject, you'll come to one conclusion, and that is that nobody can come to the same conclusion. <laughs> what we can surmise or, or uh, ascertain from this text is that the Lord was going to execute judgment on Moses, and it was fair. And the reason for that is apparently that one of his sons was not circumcised, which is a violation of God's command. In Genesis chapter 17, he's going to cut off all uncircumcised males who belong to the household of Abraham, Israel. And so how can Moses lead the people out of Egypt if his own family is not faithful? That's not a good leader. And so the Lord is going to execute his justice on him in doing that. Now, the way that we can think about this in simple terms is that this is a Passover event of God. Moses is a master literary figure in human history, and he uses themes uh, and uh, foreshadowing, and he recalls different things to illustrate future things, and he does all of that, not just to set up the Pentateuch, but really the future biblical authors will call back to everything that Moses wrote, and so this is a foreshadowing of a ton of stuff, but this event is a Passover event. And this chapter, chapter 4, is essentially one of the sons of Israel, Moses, being saved from God in the same way that the sons of Israel are going to be saved in chapters 11 through 13 as the Passover is being described. So you can think of this event as a foreshadowing of God passing over the sons of Israel, which we'll preach on later this year. One more thing to highlight about this. Moses did not escape this event from God, seeking out his life through any of his own actions. He had someone do this on his behalf. He survived this encounter with God, not because of anything that he did, but because of someone who interceded on his behalf, his wife, who is a Gentile. There is so much to explore in this that I would encourage you to go ask Joe Kilner about it later. Uh, I just don't have time, but Joe does. Um, Seriously, we're running short on time here, folks. Uh, let's move to the end here. How does this end? This scene sets up what's to come. Take a look at verses 27 through 31, and you'll see that God meets Aaron in the wilderness and tells him to go meet Moses. They get together, they go to Egypt, and what happens? They proclaim the word of God. They share with them the signs and the wonders that God had given Moses to do. And then what's the response? The response is, that the people believed and they bowed their heads and they worshiped. Truly, if you want to talk about patterns in Scripture, 
Moses is setting up how we all ought to respond to the grace of God being revealed to us. When we see the word of God go forth, our true and best response to that is to believe and to worship God. And so, now that you've seen it, we will continue on in our worship through observing something that God has given for us to see, to respond to him with in taking the Lord's Supper together. So let's bow our heads and pray. We'll take a few moments to consider these things of God, and then Kevin will come and help us with the Lord's Supper. Our Heavenly Father, we do thank you for this text. We thank you for your wonderful providence that is mysterious to us, but ought to result in the praise of your glorious grace. And so we ask that you would help us to do that. Even now in these next few moments, as we are considering how best to respond, would you by your spirit help us to know what we ought to do, how we ought to believe, how we ought to think according to your word. And I pray that we believe according to your word because your word is sufficient for us, even when it doesn't solve all the mysteries that you in your sovereignty and in your love for us withhold. And so help us to know how we ought to respond to you according to your grace and your kindness in Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's take a few moments of silence to just respond to the Lord.